Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime documentary or series, and I talk to the people who made them. We dive deep into the backstories and get answers to questions raised by what we just watched. This week, we're covering the third episode from Volume 1 of Unsolved Mysteries, House of Terror. I'll be talking with the episode's director, Clay Jeter. Almost 10 years ago, the bodies of five members of an aristocratic French family were found buried under the back porch of their home, a house later dubbed by reporters as the House of Terror. The victims, a mother and her four children, were each shot to death while they slept in their beds. Almost an entire family massacred except for the father, Xavier, who vanished shortly after the killings. His whereabouts remain unknown. A note to listeners, this episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch the entire episode before listening on. And a second note, while I pronounce Xavier's name Xavier, our guest Clay Jeter pronounces it Xavier, and I sometimes do as well. Sorry about that. Please be patient with my American pronunciation. Before we get into my conversation with Clay, here's a discussion I had with my real-life partner in crime, my husband, Kevin Flynn. Kevin is an Emmy Award-winning former TV journalist, my true crime co-author and co-host of our other true crime podcast, Crime Writers On. He also hosts the podcast, These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast. Take a listen to our breakdown of the episode right now and reactions to the real-life mystery behind it. So, Kevin... Uh, episode three of Unsolved Mysteries, The House of Terror. Mm. This was a story that I had never heard of before. How about you? I have not heard of it. Yeah. What do you think of this idea that, you know, this family can be living in this neighborhood where everybody knows them. Everyone sees them as this golden family and they see them coming and going. The shopkeepers interact with them every day. They have these like beautiful children, these like very, very attractive parents. And then one day... The shopkeeper down the street just notices all the shutters are closed, and there's a little sign over the mail hole that says, do not deliver mail here anymore. Yeah, uh, obviously in France, they pay more attention than they we do around he- here, mm. <laughs> because you know, unless there's a serial killer where they see, oh, somebody with a trash bag burying something in the backyard, nobody knows anything about their neighbors. Mm. So good on them. Right. But yeah, that's like a first, that's the first clue 
that something's not right. Mm. So this family, they mm-hmm. aren't a, like a typical American family, obviously, but they're nobility, which is something we don't really have here. You know, I, it's, <laughs> it's like, is that still a thing? Yeah. It's so a thing, yeah. The father was Xavier DuPont de Ligonais, which is pronounced a few different ways. I think my people- Count or something? I think his father was a count? Yeah. Yeah. His father was a count. And then and... he inherited the count- ship. Uh, they had four kids, Arthur, who was 20, Thomas, mm. who's 18, Anne, and Benoit, who was 13. So this family is seen by everybody as being truly, truly golden. Mm-hmm. Um, attractive, accomplished, moneyed. Do you think that it does make sense then that neighbors would you know, notice a change? But also... Don't you think that if all of a sudden a house was closed up and people were gone, that you also might just assume maybe they moved? Well, why do you think it they was that- They went on a sudden vacation. Yeah. Why do you think it was that their absence was just felt so strongly by people in the neighborhood? Well, um, there is that thing about the car, mm. that if they took one car, that they all couldn't fit in one car. Yes. So it's like, well, what's up with that? Plus dogs? Six people and two dogs. Yeah. Like that wasn't going to- that wasn't going to work. And, yeah, I don't know. Apparently, they had a, an attempt. They wanted to move to Miami, and, mm. like, that didn't work Florida, out. Florida, yeah. Because of immigration or whatever His whatever American it was. American dream, yes. His American dream did not come true, mm. like a lot of American dreams. Uh, that turned that became a spiral downward right. for the Count. One of the interesting things that happens in the episode is that we meet some friends of Xavier's uh, from when he was younger, especially his friend in Versailles, his best friend, who he, he met in the 70s when they were both 16 years old. And he tells us that Xavier came from this prestigious, uh, noble family, mm-hmm. not something that we can exactly relate to, this like lineage, this idea that you're living among like diplomats and, you know, in Versailles and near the palace and you're also cool. It's like, it's not an upbringing that most people could relate to. Right. It implies that you must lead a life of success. Yes. And nobility. Mm-hmm. And if you are not able to do that for some reason, it's probably a great shame. Hmm. One of the interesting details that we learn from Xavier's friend is that uh, Xavier and Agnes met when they were also very young. They were teenagers. Right. They broke up for a period of time, and uh, the oldest son, Arthur is not Xavier's. He actually is the product of another relationship Agnes had while they were broken up. They got back together. Xavier married Agnes and adopted Arthur as his own. What did you think about that detail? In a a family, I think that's a great thing, you know, to say to, you know, this child, I accept you as my own. Mm. But it is an important thing because the title, Mm -hmm. the nobility, is not going to pass to his oldest son because he's not his biological son right so it's going to pass to the second oldest son thomas and we see that play out in the way the murders happen yes what do you make of the fact that when the bodies are all discovered under the terrace we have um agnes and two of the kids and two dogs and one site and then thomas the older son not the oldest son but the second oldest son buried separately they were all buried with religious icons wrapped in blankets sort of items of comfort what do you make of that yeah, I think the police are right on with their interpretation of what all that was. I mean, we know that they're very Catholic, and so he was trying in his way to give him a consecrated burial. And then, you know, with Thomas absent, the reason that his body's not buried with the other one is we know now 
that he was at school. He came a couple of days later. He was called back by his called dad. back by his dad. Hmm. Come here, uh, and I'm sure that that just. Um, that's an interesting detail. So the autopsy, they did find sleeping pills mm-hmm. uh, had been taken by the kids or been given to the kids. Agnes had no drugs in her system, but they know pretty much her exact time of death because she slept with a sleep apnea machine. Right. And there's an app that goes uh-huh. with a sleep apnea machine. They were able to determine that it, when it got shut off. Yeah. exactly at 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. on April 4th. So this is a full week before the neighbors notice the shutters closed. A yeah. full week. Uh, he lived in this house with these bodies for a really long time before he ended up going on the run because the other detail that the medical examiner notes is that each person was killed with two bullets to the head, execution style. What do you make of that? I, th- I think it's it goes to the whole theory of the murder, which is being a family annihilator. Mm. Do you remember the name John List? Because mm-hmm. we talked about this on our other one of our other podcasts. These are the stories. It's a Law & Order podcast, and Law & Order has used this as a rip from the headline story a lot. Yes. John List was a guy who had a you know perfect family, and he lost his job, and he didn't tell anybody, and he felt like he was a failure, and he killed everybody in his family, and then he went on the run, in part because he felt embarrassed that he couldn't provide for them. And this is all the classic signs of the family annihilator. Hmm. He lost his uh, his standing. Financially, he was struggling. His father died. His father died. He could foresee that he would not be able to provide for his family and be a failure in their eyes. So rather than embarrass them or embarrass himself, he killed his whole family. And like John List, he goes on the run. Hmm. John List lived for, I don't know, two decades. Uh, in the, under an assumed name, or maybe he left from New Jersey. Did he end up with a new family and stuff? Yeah, he yeah, did. Yeah, He did. And I think this might be one of the reasons why the big mystery in this is not the homicide, but what happened to Xavier. When the police first go in and they, it, they the house was staged to look like they had moved out, Yeah, there does seem to just be this very methodical mind at work here. Let people think we went on a long trip. But then why also send these very suspicious letters at the same time? He was trying to buy time for himself. Yeah. Yeah, but how much time? I mean, he certainly could have seen on the news that they were on to him and that it was only a matter of time before. Well, those letters went out, though, before he left the house. He mailed them probably like on the 8th or right. the well, he's trying yeah. to. He's, he knows he's going to go on a journey. Right. And he wants some time. And they determined that where he went, he was visiting the best times of his life. Right. The happiest times. Right. If it's his shame and his sadness that motivated the killing of his whole family, he might try to recapture that the feeling of goodness. What's ironic, though, is that the letters are what ends up with the police on his tail faster because mm-hmm. Agnes's family doesn't believe it for a second. They immediately go to the prosecutor of this beautiful small town in France yeah. and say, this isn't true. And, of course, not that hard a story to check, I'm assuming, that somebody would go undercover, quote, with the DEA. And- yeah, especially if you're using your credit card exactly. all over exactly. France. Exactly. So it's almost like the letters actually triggered a search that mm-hmm. may have taken longer to begin because they didn't, you know, find the bodies until like the 21st. Yeah. Uh, you know, he would have had, I think, more time had he not made the authorities suspicious with those letters, which is ironic to I feel me. like if he had said, I surprised the family and we're in Disney World. Correct. Now, we then go back in time a little bit to a few months before the murder. We hear that Xavier's father, Hubert, died from a heart attack. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, he went to his father's apartment to clean it out, and apparently he was searching the apartment for the count ring. Yeah. That apparently if you're a count, you get a special ring, and that he was combing through the apartment for money. The neighbor says there was nothing there at all except for a twenty two rifle. Right. And then Xavier becomes obsessed with this weapon, starts practicing using it. A person who had never shot a gun before, never took yeah. any interest. What do you think? What do you make of that? A couple of things. I, he seemed to be looking for money that would save him, save his family in his eyes. And a twenty-two is a small caliber gun, so you could shoot somebody at relatively close range. Plus, he bought close, the silencer. Right, the silencer. So we then follow Xavier. The police are able to trace his slow journey away from the crime scene. Mm -hmm. He did not get into his car and drive all the way across Europe and go to some country with no extradition laws, which he could have done. Right. He instead takes his leisurely drive toward the south of France and seemingly wants to be seen. He uses credit card in cafes. He looks at security cameras that he's walking by. He is not in any way trying to be on the run. Yeah. Do you think in those days he thought, I'm not going to get caught, I have all the time in the world, so it's almost like being casual is less suspicious? Or do you think he was deliberately leaving a trail of evidentiary breadcrumbs for investigators to find? Hmm, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think his end goal... Well, hold on. Hold on, Rebecca. You're making me think now. Hmm. The actual mystery in this unsolved mysteries episode is what happened to Xavier. Right. So there are two theories because they see him walking off into the wilderness with that rifle or mm -hmm. what they assume is that rifle. A bag that looks like a rifle bag, yeah. And his body is never seen again. Mm. So the one theory is that he killed himself mm -hmm. and could his body vanish at, you know, after he dies? Yes, it does happen a lot, especially in rough terrain. You don't know where he did it. Animals, things like that, they always make it difficult it seems to be the simplest explanation. But if he were running away, if he was faking his death so he could escape and disappear, then he would be very deliberate about where he went and to be, to be seen going away into the woods so that we would assume that. It works both ways. We hear from two people who believe he ran away to Latin America, who yeah. believe that he fooled everyone. Right. And ran away. In the John List case, that's what happened, right? John yeah. List didn't see himself as disposable. He was very narcissistic. He didn't want to let everybody down. The shame of that would be too much to bear. Mm -hmm. But he also had too much narcissism to end his own life and wanted to just go on and start a new one, start fresh. Yeah. Do you think that could be a possibility in this Xavier case? It could be. Mm. I mean, it, it could be. I just, I, I don't know. I feel like... Maybe he wanted to do that, whether he's successful. I mean, financially, you'd have to be able to do that, and he didn't seem to have the finances to just to live a normal life. So that would be hard. And if you're talking about crossing international borders, you know, without with a different passport, I, you know, that's that's kind of hard to do logistically to, you know, swing off to Latin America. But he could move freely about Europe. Mm. So... Who knows? Hmm. Who knows? Yeah, he, I mean, I don't think Latin America, but could he be somewhere in Belgium or in Italy as a dishwasher or something like that? It seems to be against his personality, hmm. but if you want to get away with murder, hmm. that's how you do it. And we do hear he looks like an everyman and could be anywhere. Yeah, that's great. He looks like everybody and nobody. Hmm.
All right. Well, I hope somebody comes forward with something in this case. We guess we'll find out. It's a really interesting case. It really, really is. Thanks for talking about it with me, Kevin. Sure. Thanks again to Kevin Flynn, my very favorite person to watch Netflix with. Now, here's my interview with episode director Clay Jeter. Clay Jeter, thank you so much for talking to me about this episode. I'm really excited about it. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. When I started watching this episode, which is called House of Terror, I thought it was one kind of story, and it ended up being a different kind of story altogether. And I found myself wondering, as a viewer, am I supposed to wonder, is the mystery what happened to this family, this, you know, Agnes, the wife, the four kids, the two dogs, what actually happened to them? Or is the mystery, is is Xavier alive and hiding or is he dead? Like, is the mystery about him and his whereabouts or is it about, I mean, do you think there is validity to the idea that something else happened to this family other than being killed by Xavier? So there is no physical evidence linking him to the crime. We hear that. But there's a lot of other evidence pointing to him. Um what do you what do you think I should think the central mystery is here or is it both? Well, I think that's the I was going to say that's the beauty of this case. There's nothing beautiful about this case, but that's one of the things that is really incredible about this case when it comes to the mystery is there's so much of it and there's mystery at every turn. Honestly, this could be an entire series on its own and there's so much that we weren't able to really present stuff that we shot footage for and we cut scenes together. We can talk more about that later. But basically, you know, I don't know that you need to know what kind of mystery it is going in. And I don't know that you need to know what the fundamental mystery was coming out of it. I will say, for me, I was very interested in the first mystery that was positioned to me, which was like, okay, let's assume that all this evidence that this guy Xavier probably did this, most likely did this, if we just take that for granted... There's a show about where is he now? That's a mystery show. There's also the mystery of like, well, if he did it, why did he do it? What was going on in this guy's life where everyone saw one image of this family and then this totally unexplainable thing? And it became very clear early on when we started doing our interviews with Anne Sophie, with Bruno, that that question was right forefront on their minds. It makes sense to to go at at that. And then right in the middle of it, of course, is the mystery of, did he actually do it? Is there any other explanation? And if he did, how did he pull this off? Someone who was not a criminal mastermind, how does he how does he do this in the middle of a city like this and, and get away with it? I am curious about that backstory because, you know, there is a type of killer, as I discussed with my husband, Kevin, as we were watching the episode, called a family annihilator. It's sort of a known uh, killer profile, somebody who usually very narcissistic, usually has a sense of tremendous failure around uh, not being able to provide for or maintain the image of, you know, finances, family life. Very often there are some religious components to this type of profile of killer. It's a very interesting profile. But one of the things that Xavier in particular does is if if this is in fact the case, if in fact he is this type of killer, he decided to, you know, kill his whole family and then disappear into the wind or kill himself. We, that's another mystery, as we mentioned. The planning and the tactics of this particular crime are truly extraordinary. The police went to the house day after day after day after day. They didn't find the bodies until, you know, a few days into returning there every day. 
no blood anywhere, no DNA anywhere, and taking the content of the letters that were sent aside, uh, there is this very methodical plan to sort of buy time and make the house look like the family left on purpose. So we are either talking about somebody incredibly organized or we're talking about somebody who went from who he was to what he became at the end, which was a completely different and degraded version of himself. So, I mean, that organization is extraordinary, if that, in fact, is what happened, right? Absolutely. I think one of the first questions we ask ourselves when we when we look at this is we go, here's a guy who, as far as we know, you know, he has no real criminal record. He's not, you know, part of the mob, as far as we know, right? So killing people, getting rid of bodies escaping into the wind in a modern country like France and in a city like Nantes, it just feels like this isn't the kind of thing that you get away with in 2011, right? With zero experience, you know? So it feels really unbelievable, you know? So to go in and, and look at how he might've done that and how it all, how he put it all together. Um, yeah, it is, it is a mystery and it's, and it's really, really interesting part of the story. We did hear that he had this big financial dream that, in the film is sort of identified as his American dream. Can you talk a little bit about that and about the financial change that this family went through that, you know, the rest of the family may or may not have known about, but certainly was on his mind very heavily. Like how did he lose the money and how much did he lose? Sure. Well, I'm not going to know all of the details of this going in, but I will say to understand Xavier is to understand him in the context of the noble family Dupont de Ligonnès. And the fact that he was born in Versailles, Versailles, you know, the 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 palaces, you know, the place where this all this legendary nobility of France, where they spent all this time, we've seen it in movies, you know, it's it's so renowned. And he wasn't just part of this nobility. The Dupont de Ligonnès family was really, really special, really elite. In his mind, it was his birthright that he would have an incredible life. So when this is not his reality, and this is not what is happening for him. I think that's really significant to understanding where Xavier's head was, how the expectations that he had in his mind for his life matched up with the life that he was actually living. And I think that the American dream enters into this. So Xavier considered himself a businessman. You know, it's very vague what Xavier's various businesses are. Some people said, well, you know, he was like a salesman or, you know, he was a businessman. He had a lot of business ventures. No one could really tell you what they really were <laughs> fundamentally. I can talk more about them and I have more specifics than that. But he was this entrepreneur, you know. What better place to go and be successful if your story is, oh, Xavier is an entrepreneur, a businessman. Now he's gone to the epicenter of capitalism in the world. America to go be a successful capitalist businessman and prove to everyone back home that he really is excellent, that he really is among the elite, that he really is special and he's living this incredible life. It, it makes sense. America just makes sense. You know, of course, right. he goes to America and it doesn't just all fall into place um, like that. This makes something make more sense to me hearing you talk about it. Now, of course, I am coming at this from the point of view that the most likely scenario is that he murdered his family and, you know, went on the run. And what happened to him after that is unknown. I mean, that seems to be the most likely scenario. I know there are other theories and I do want to talk about that. But one of the things I found myself wondering and watching the episode is 
the letters, the content of the letters sent to friends and family members about where the family was going. You know, this this attempt apparently to buy some sort of time, which ironically did trigger an investigation, which didn't end up uh, having the opposite effect, which I thought was interesting. If I think if the letters had some diff- sort of different content in them, you know, I've decided to take my family on a trip for a month. We'll see you then or something. It probably wouldn't have maybe raised as much suspicion. However, the specific content of his letters is we are going on a secret mission to become undercover agents in the United States for the DEA. We're changing our names. We're going to like, uh, you know, have new identities. You're not going to be able to talk to us ever. That sort of is a very dark fantasy version of that American dream that you just described, right? The reinvention and the sort of idea of undercover agents, you know, for this law enforcement agency is also sort of very pop culture view of America. I think about all the, you know, the television shows and films that we export to the world. To me, that makes more sense now. I was wondering about that before. What do you think? Absolutely. I mean, he couldn't help himself. He had to paint himself as a man of international mystery, you know, the right, kind of right. person that you make you make action movies about and television shows about a hero, you know. So I just don't think he was pragmatic enough. Well, of course, I'm saying this and we know that we have not found Xavier. So, you know, if he's still out there, he knew what he was doing to some degree, but he was compelled to do that, that story, that narrative. And I think that in order to try to understand all of the things that he did and how he could have killed his his wife and his children and at the same time believed that he loved them very much and was doing the best thing that he could do for them, which we can talk more about. But the only way that you can understand how he could possibly believe those things and have those actions come out of it, it all lines up with the DEA story. It's 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 that vanity, that idea of image, that idea of, of being great and delivering for everyone on that birthright that that you were handed, you know, living up to that. Um, it, it seems like that fundamentally, that's the foundation of all of this. Hmm. I think it's amazing that there's so little uh, or none, apparently, very close to no forensic evidence pointing to him having committed these crimes. And of course, uh, the method of the murders, as we learn in the episode, is that each victim was shot twice in the head, which, of course, you know, does bring about imagery of some sort of professional assassination. Uh, I think, again, something that we've sort of seen again and again in pop culture. I'd love to hear. I know that there are people who don't believe he committed these murders. Can you talk a little bit about that and what those alternate theories are about the, the crimes themselves? Sure. You know, if I'm speaking to uh, Stefan uh, Goldenstein, his his uh, family's lawyer who represents, I guess, his sister, Christine, and, and her husband and um, Xavier's mother, uh, Genevieve, he would say he wouldn't have done this. So he has no motive. He he couldn't have done this because he doesn't have the, the skills to have pulled something like this off. And of course, as he mentions in the episode, the the area where the graves were were dug underneath the terrace, it's very low. It would be a ton of physical labor to remove this soil um, to fill that many bodies. And, you know, Xavier reportedly um, had a bad back and there's just no way that he could have done that himself. But that doesn't, that still doesn't point and say, well, well, who did this, you know? And I don't, there's no, no one who has a really great story about a motivation that makes sense out of this. I'll throw you 
a couple of, of things that came up when you really push towards the conspiratorial, right? Because we all agree that the vast majority of the evidence doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room for who committed these murders. Right. But in fact, I I, um, I could argue that it might be irresponsible to spend too much time on theories. However, I do think that the forensics do at least point to them being considered. So what is the theory? Like, what is that alternative? Well, you know, maybe conspiratorial theory. Yeah. Well, one theory is that, um, you know, Xavier was caught up in some stuff that we don't really understand. And the letters that Xavier wrote, these were all forced. There were actually were professional killers who were who did all of this, who killed Xavier's family and then later killed him and framed Xavier for the murder of his own families. And really, this was just something that Xavier was caught up in, in his maybe financial desperations. And um, that's how this all came to pass. So that's one theory. Now, we don't know who those players are and what their motivations really were, but it's one idea of how this could have been done so professionally and still explain the disappearance of Xavier, that he actually was murdered, but he was murdered away from the home um, in a way that was designed to make it look like um, he had had killed them and got on this this road trip and then disappeared and run off. The other theory that is even more, uh, even more, even more outlandish, I would say, um, when the autopsies were done on the body, it was pretty obvious to everyone involved that hey, look. We are missing a mother and four children and two dogs. And lo and behold, here's a mother and four children and two dogs. And they match, roughly match ages and, and genders. And so there's no real need to do, <laughs> to, to really go and, and dot every I and cross every T on this um, because it's kind of obvious what happened here. So let's let's wrap this up quickly. Let's move on. Let's allow these, these bodies to be buried very quickly. And let's all let the family get some peace. But in that process... Um, there was DNA evidence that suggested that the bodies who were found were all related to one another. But there was no actual evidence that said this actually is Agnes, Arthur, Thomas, Benoit, Anne. There was no evidence that specifically identifies who they are, just that they were related. There was no ID process? They didn't have didn't bring somebody in and they say did not this, this person? Wow. There was no visual identification. The uh, coroner suggests yeah. they and they kept the the family members out, presumably because these bodies have been buried for a while. They don't look so good. Right. Like let's just save right. them the trouble because it's obvious what happened here. But the conspiracy, you know, theory might say no. They were they were kept away. You know, um, anyway, they weren't brought in. There was no visual identification. And within a couple of days, the bodies were buried. And it hmm. wasn't until later that we said, oh, did we? Did we mess something up here? You know, should we have should we have done a little bit more? So anyway, that is, again, pretty far fetched. But the idea is, OK, so if it's not them, who is it? Well, that again, another you know, another family of five. <laughs> and and in that scenario, you know, whether it was actually the DEA or something else similar, Xavier was kind of telling the truth in that letter. And he and the family are off in hiding somewhere for some reason, whether mm-hmm. it's to work with the DEA or to run away from mobsters or who knows what um and there was a whole system that helped them with this escape and planted these bodies and the cover story is that xavier murdered his entire family 
As a friend of mine said um, uh, recently to me, that's like walking around the entire block to going to the house next door. I mean, it's it is a I mean, if if I would push back, if someone were to present me with that theory and I would push back and say, wouldn't an easier and better thing to do be to find five similar height, weight, age dead people and burn the house down rather than coming up with this incredibly elaborate family annihilation story. So I understand that is very far-fetched. I understand also why you didn't want to spend a lot of time on it, but it is intriguing. I mean, that is, it's tantalizing, and I, I'm completely fascinated by the idea that that's somebody's theory. I have to be honest with you. Yeah, Occam's Razor would not support this theory. <laughs> I'm really curious about, um, you know, Xavier and, now I'm saying it the French way, look at me, uh, Xavier Ooh. and Agnes's marriage. Do we know any more about the state of the marriage? Do we know if there was some sort of disruption in the relationship that perhaps people on the outside, the shopkeepers, the, the friends still in Versailles may not have known about? We do. We do have some clues to that. What we know is that Agnes was very, very religious, as is mentioned in, in the episode. Um, Xavier, I think, was sort of theoretically religious and interested in it, but not really in practice. Um, but... Agnes had been posting stuff on some forums um, and having some dialogues and sort of expressing to some people the in these kind of smaller communities the issues that she was having with Xavier and with their relationship and the darkness that was coming between them. And she even says at one point, and I'm, again, don't quote me exactly on this, but, you know, something to the effect of that Xavier, Xavier had told her all of us dying in a mass suicide would not be the worst thing for us and like and she had posted mm. this she had typed this this out it's really interesting because you know i just can't help but think what it says about his mental state and also his character in some ways that he thinks the better option for his wife and four children is for them to die like it's better that they that that he murders them than they all have to live the life that he wasn't expecting them to live or that, you know, he doesn't. It's just it's really hard to get into the head of somebody who would think that way. But it certainly seems like with everything that you've told me and also with his discovery of the gun after his father's death and his growing obsession with shooting and buying the silencer. I mean, I know we said that there's no forensic evidence linking him to the, you know, the physical part of the, the crime but there certainly is a pattern and there's certainly a lot of circumstantial evidence and you know the mindset of somebody who would think people were better off dead than anything else is is really hard to wrap your mind around right it's always impossible to make that final step you can follow along someone's headspace but when they finally go through with that moment it's very very difficult you know i am a relatively new father myself and it you just can't get there you know um but it's something that mm -hmm. you come up against time and time again when you see somebody do something like this that's unthinkable but i do think that in xavier's mind um he believed that he was saving them from mm -hmm. a life of embarrassment which is right. the shame. worst a life of shame which to him was just the worst possible thing imagined. Better to right. not exist at all than to live in shame. I'm curious, you talked a little bit about some of the scenes that were left out of this episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Is there anything else that you shot or wanted to shoot or learned that 
you know, for time or any other reason you wish that someone like me, a viewer, uh, could know about or could have watched? Oh, yeah. Always there is. And and in this episode, just like everything else there is, too, um, we actually spent a lot of time and energy um, shooting much more thorough and detailed recreations of the crime itself. Not the crime as we, you know, unsolved mysteries were suggesting this is what we think happened, but rather we have Anne Sophie, for example. We have um, Detective Jean- Jean-Marc Bloch. Um, with his amazing voice, um, telling us their theories of what happened, how things unfolded, what was done. And they tell it to us very clearly, but it is their opinion of what might have happened. And so when we went out and we shot, we said, why don't we bring these to life with imagery, you know? And so we shot all these sequences that involved Xavier in the house at night, going into the bedrooms, um, with the with the children, you know, with the wife, um, we had him in the backyard. We we got lucky or unlucky with a crazy rainstorm when we were shooting our exterior nighttime scene, and it made it very dramatic. Where we did this pouring rain scene outside, where Xavier is digging, you know, the graves and the the mud's piling up, and he's he's wearing this headlamp, and and the light is all backlit and then he's he's rolling the bodies into the grave and I, I think for our, our our amazing local art department where we insisted on digging these gigantic holes to actually be able to accommodate mm. this action and then now they're not in the episode and I remember we had the conversation are we actually going to see it because if not I can just dig a tiny little hole if you just want to see a little portion of it I was like no no, no we're definitely going to see it and we <laughs> shot it and it was amazing but then in the end episode all you see is a tiny little corner when they when the when the officer first uncovers and i think what happened was we went back and we looked at the stories and we said there was no first person witness there to actually witness mm. these things you know i actually am not convinced that it would make the episode stronger or more emotional it creates quite and sophie and 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 jean-marc they create quite vivid imagery um in the mind of the viewer and so maybe you don't need it, but it's tough. Do you have hope that this episode being out in the world might get some answers uh, in this case? I know there have been sort of sightings of Xavier in the world in the past that didn't pan out, right? And I'm wondering if you have hope whether or not this episode may actually resolve something. Maybe someone out there does know something. Absolutely, I have hope. When this came to light in 2011, it was a phenomenon. People obsessed over this case in France and beyond. Um, I mean, it just exploded. And I think they have documented 800 to 900 reported sightings of Xavier in the past decade. So not just once or twice. This is on people's minds. They are seeing Xavier everywhere. It, I have to hope that it's it's still possible, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that... There that and that because that's what that's what motivates the producers of the show and they used it to motivate me. So, um, yeah. And when you put something and now looking at Netflix and the the reach that Netflix has is so vast, you just never know. It, it goes out all around the world. So we will see. 
Well, if anyone can get it done, it's Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix. Clay Jeter, thank you so much for talking to me about this episode. I really enjoyed it. It's a very intriguing story and one that I didn't know a lot about. So great work. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure talking to you. We have reached the end of this week's episode. Thanks again to Clay Jeter. Loyal fans of Unsolved Mysteries might remember these words from the late and irreplaceable former host of the show, Robert Stack. For every mystery, someone, somewhere knows the truth. Perhaps that person is someone listening. Perhaps it's you. If you have any leads on what might have happened to Xavier Dupont de Ligonesse, go to unsolved.com to share tips or to learn more about the hundreds of other mysteries covered by the series. And for more of my takes on true crime and how we cover it in the media, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please subscribe to rate and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode on Unsolved Mysteries, Episode 4, No Ride Home. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>